I just went to myself, what am I doing here? Like, I'm the law of the school. Um, and now I've got the British Army looking for me. And anyway, uh, my mom says, get the thing out. So the plane folded me. Got me out of Landover, took me in the SP and told me to get down on my knees. And they pushed me down on my knees. And so your mom cocks a gun, I hear a gun cracking. Fired it. And well, he fired it. Unless you're a psychopath, right? It's very hard to do that thing. Uh, you need to have coping mechanisms. You need to convince yourself that you're right. You need to convince yourself that it's the enemy. You need to do all of that. Otherwise, you know, you know, if it was United Ireland tomorrow, people here would get persecuted. So if United Ireland was there, I wouldn't trust Republicans not to persecute those people who were involved or their funds. Uh, Billy, th thank you very much for for sitting down with me and taking the time. And um, we've uh, we've loads to go into. You've 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 a hell of a life lived um, up until this point. So you might to, to start people off. You might you might just kind of describe what what the area you grew up uh, was like, and uh, and 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 indeed where it is. Just provide a context. You were born uh, you were born nineteen fifty five. So so very much came. Um, came of age as a teenager when when the conflict was was kind of heating up and, and getting going. Well, suppose I, I grew up in part of Belfast, which was called the Shankill. And I think it, that Shankland Falls uh, seemed to be talked about more than anywhere else. Um, and uh, when I was growing up, both the Shankill and the Falls was mixed. So there were people from both religions lived there. Um, and then I suppose uh, one of the troubles broke out in 69 and it changed things and people moved away. Um, people's homes were attacked and stuff like that. So on both sides, people moved away uh, to live in safer areas. So from that point of view, it was a very, there were very working class areas. The Shango wasn't seen as a full British. Lots of people I suppose in my area came back from different conflicts around the world in the 50s and 60s uh, and settled uh, all over the place, but you know, I knew the ones came back and settled in Shangle. Um, so uh, from that point of view, they were coming back um, in a very working class area, uh, an area that was you know full of poverty, um, but still people believed that it was a unionist government for you know for unionist people, uh, but they didn't do anything about it. Uh, but people had this belief. They, uh, I suppose, in sort of the sixties, the uh, the whole notion of uh, British Empire had collapsed or was collapsing. Um, so you had all of that, but people were away fighting, uh, inclusive like Cyprus, Aden, you know, just to mention two but all the other conflicts down around the world. Um, and so that was very prevalent at that particular time. Uh, people were in the services and came back uh, and were coming back and couldn't get a house. Um, so from that point of view, they were the problems that was existing then. Um, but some people look back with nostalgia and say they were the good old days. <laughs> but, you know, that's how we all see life. You, yeah. you, 
sorry, you, you would have considered yourself if someone asked you, are you are you Irish or British? You you you'd have most certainly said said British, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think there's a, there's an argument here, and I think it, that argument has disappeared very quickly because of the uh, Republicans how they make their own narrative. I mean, I went to school, primary school, when I lived there, and uh, I also went to secondary school when I lived there. But in primary school, we wore a shamrock in our, in our jumpers going to school, put in by our parents. Uh, you know, there was a unionist hall and an orange hall not far from where I lived. Uh, and they put on all sorts of cultural things and stuff like that. Uh, in fact, there was Irish dancing in some of them as well. Uh, my ex-wife uh, was a carry was a, was a was a carry set was a carry set you call it? yeah um, and that's what she did when she was a kid uh, because it was part of our culture um, but you know that all changed uh, whenever we had Professional Ireland and others who didn't want anybody to be Irish so my, my view is and this is my only my view politically I'm British but Irish. I always had a bit of Irish culture in that sense because it was taught to me at school. Uh, it was taught to me when we went to the sort of, you know, the Unionist Hall or the Orange Hall. In fact, it was, a, I remember one time just around the corner from where I lived. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the Orange Order Lodge. Um, but it was called something like, it was Irish culture or something, but on the banner, it was all about Irish culture. It wasn't King Billy on the banner. It wasn't a king or a queen. It was about Irish culture. Uh, and I think, it, you know, all of that changed after then, uh, obviously because uh, of propaganda and because of the hatred that was built up and because of the attacks on British people. So it wasn't like, you know, my father... I always say I was brought up in a mixed marriage because my father was a socialist and my mother was a unionist. You know, um, so their politics were very, very different. My father would have went to somebody like Jerry Pitt, uh, where my mother would have went to whoever the local MP was or local councillors uh, who were all unionists. So they have two different opinions clashed all the time. And I heard the debates in the house uh, when I was a clash. So, you know, but no, it was never about just being British. British was our political identity, but we always had that sense of Irishness as well in terms of our culture and seen it every day in my life. It wasn't something that was, you know, denounced or hidden away. Um, I, I think I think roughly speaking, the through through those decades, kind of 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, the ratio Catholic Protestant was about kind of 60 40. Um, Protestant Catholic. Did it feel as if? Did it feel as if you you were part of a a, a majority? Yeah, we were a majority in terms of not Protestant Catholic, but Unionist and Nationalist. We always were, uh, and the vote showed that. I think that people get people are mistaken if they think that every Protestant born is a Unionist and every Catholic born is a Nationalist. It's not how it works. People will have their views. Uh, they they will learn the views. Um. Uh, and then they make a decision about what they do. So, you know, I keep saying to people, no matter what happens around a border poll, there'll be a large minority. And if you don't deal with that large minority, then you're going to be in trouble. doesn't matter who that minority is. 
you know, if you don't deal with them in, in a proper way, uh, you know, so my view is not about trying to get the Catholics to vote unionist. My view has always been that what we need to do is to get make Catholics feel at home in the UK. Um, Northern Ireland is part of the UK, and that's what we have to do. Um, uh, you know, I know that uh, other people now, like the Ulster Unionist Party, are trying to get middle class Catholics to vote for them. Why would you vote if you were a Catholic and a nationalist? Why would you vote unionist? Or if you're, you know, if you're unionist, why would you vote nationalist? Um, you can use your PR to do that, but it, when it comes to, uh, you know, a, an election for an MP, you can't do that because you've only one choice. Yeah, you know. But anyway, you know, so you've got all of those issues in your face. Now. Some people don't understand what they are, even though they're they they're in these political parties. I mean, the reality is, you know, I represented the PEP. We had a document back in 1879 which talked about making Catholics feel comfortable uh, in the Union. Uh, and what was presented to the then Secretary of State, he said this document's 20 years ahead of its time. That document was the basis of a Good Friday Agreement. But all the things that the Good Friday Agreement had in it, but no Secretary of State, would actually push it because he said nobody else was as far on as the PEP were in '79. Okay, <clears throat> I've, I've interviewed other um, I've interviewed other lawyers before, and 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 I've uh, I've somehow forgot to ask the question. But does do the the terms unionist and loyalist essentially mean the same thing? Are they kind of interchangeable? Any difference between them? No, no, they're not not the same thing. Uh, loyalism is a term that's given to people who are involved in bands. It's a derogatory term used by the media. So to give you an interest, I'll give you an, an example, sir. You know, I uh, read the headlines in the Belfast Telegraph, no it on the billboards, and I got a call, call from the late David Irvine, and he said to me, what did you do? I says, didn't do anything. Did he said, it says here, and it said on the, on the billboard, uh, Lawless Councillor arrested for assault. I said, it wasn't me. Now, we're the only two lawyers counsellors. There's nobody else. But the point that I'm making to you is, it was a DUP counsellor who had been arrested for assaulting a police officer and they described him as a loyalist politician. And that was a DUP counsellor but was a loyalist politician. You know, and this is, you know, so it's always been used as a derogatory term. But my view is about loyalism, it's about somebody who's prepared to take up arms. Okay, okay. It's, it's the willingness to, to engage in, in violence for it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Interesting. Everybody will have a different definition, including the media, which is just one. Uh, let's use this whenever uh, something bad happens. I mean, the one I described as DUP. Fair enough. Um, the, can you recall? Can you recall, like maybe your earliest memory of either experiencing sectarianism yourself or just seeing it and being aware that 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 sectarianism is 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 what you were seeing? You know, do, do you remember how early? Well, I, I didn't know it was sectarianism at the time, but the Melbourne Street Murders, uh, my grandmother lived fifty yards from there. So in the 60s, I was always, well, in the early 60s, I was always with my grandmother. My grandmother died in 66. Um, 
but I still run up and down to see my granddad and my aunts and uncles and stuff like that. So, you know, I seen all this writing on the wall about the UVF, uh, <clears throat> and I'd heard about the Malvern Street Burners. You know what I mean? Um, so that was going on, but I didn't know or didn't think about it being sectarian. Uh, so from that point of view, obviously, uh, whether people want to describe it as sectarian or not, uh, as another matter, from my position, I don't say it as sectarian. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm only going with what I know that I didn't know then. Uh, but, you know, the reality is uh, that I didn't come up against sectarian because I said my father was a socialist. So my father took me to Dunville Park, which is just at the Royal, on Royal Hospital in the Falls. He took me to Clonard Pitcher's Pitcher House, which is just down from there. So, you know, um, he had a friend called Patty Smith, and he took me to, to his to their house, which is on Cooper Street. Uh, you know, so from that point of view, you know, I didn't see all this, didn't, you know, my father didn't talk about it. My mother talked more about what unionism was doing for everybody and, and all that sort of stuff. And he talked about what unionism wasn't doing and what, you know, what nationalists would do in terms of independent nationalists or by cancers and stuff. So from that point of view, uh, it was totally different. It, you know, um, uh, so when I was growing up, that's the sort of thing I grew up in. I had Catholic friends who lived up the street. Um, didn't talk about it. Didn't do anything. Um, they uh, just got on with it. There was no um, that animal world. There were no signs of, you know, suggesting they were Catholics in terms of religious. They didn't have any other stuff in the house or anything else but lived there. Uh, now, in fairness, it was a mixed marriage. The mother was a Catholic and the father was a Protestant. So, you know, from that point of view. Um, but when I did go to Paddy Smith's house, it was covered in stuff, which was about the Catholic religion. Yeah, the Pope, the Virgin Mary, all that sort of stuff. Um, so from, from that point of view, that's what I seen. Did it scare me? Not really. Um, when I was young, the chapel at Ardoin was one of the doors you run up the steps, get up, and then knock a door and run. Um, but the reality was, we were told uh, that there was tongues in it, and if it caught a fraud, when the tongue would never come out again. So, you know, but all of this is uh, mythical around religion, if you know what I mean. Um, but no, I mean, until the troubles really started, you know, uh, we didn't see it. Uh, you know, my community was more focused on people working, you know, because of the present state, you had to work. And I know one guy who didn't work and he run up and down the fifties all there and he did uh, painting for people and stuff like that. And they paid him on their hand. And he was totally deplored in that area. He was seen as somebody who was uh, how will I describe it now? I'm trying to think of the right word. Anyway, he was seen as somebody who didn't work. So therefore he didn't pay taxes. Uh, and he was living off the state. That's how he was seen. I'm trying to think of the word in the car tomorrow. What I would use for it. I don't want to be using just a word. Uh, but, like a freeloader or something? 
Or, well, something yeah. like that, yeah. But, you know, uh, everybody was down on, you know, because he didn't work. Yeah, you know, so there was that sort of stuff. You were ostracized by people if you didn't have a job. Right, you know, when I think back and I'm going, what happened to that guy before DLA or whatever we got here? You know, when he was on the sick or whatever. And then people would say to me, if I said that to them, well, he runs up and down the book. He's all down, he's painting people's houses. So he couldn't be that sick, if you know what I mean. But, you know, but that's the way it was. It was a state where everybody believed that they had a duty to go out and work. Even though it meant that they were working for less money, uh, then they would have got somewhere else. They did it. Uh, and it was about keeping the state going, making sure the engineering firms, and the shipbuilding, and everything else, and aircraft building was all there to actually bring the money in to help us do it. Um, you uh, obviously know the, the troubles properly like officially kind of started like like you said 69 but obviously in the in the years leading up to them there was um there was very much it, it was more than a simmering it was it was uh the situation was kind of being brought to a boil um and then eventually the the british army had to had to be brought in and stuff um do you remember yeah, but, after, yeah, but you have to remember this at the behest of the catholic population they were brought in attacked them you know, um, but going back to what you were saying there, there was trouble in 66. 66 was the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. The IRA were active and being active in Ardoin, which is just at the back of Shango. So they were already recruiting and building up. Um, and that's why uh, the Marlboro Street murders happened and other things happened at the same time. If you check out history around that time, you'll see that there was an increase in violence. So there was a threat to the state, as far as some people were concerned at that particular time. I wasn't, I was nine, wasn't 10 yet, right? Or what? Oh, I was 10. I wasn't 11 yet. So from that point of view, you know, I can only speak by what I've seen and then what I read, you know what I mean? And also would have been told. So you know, we have all of those problems. Yes. Um 66 was the 50th anniversary of Easter Rising and the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Song. And there was conflict there in terms of both of those. Because the IRA wouldn't have wanted to commemorate Irish soldiers who died in the 36th, or sorry, in the 16th Irish Division or the 36th Ultra Division. So you had all of that. So there was there was a history here. You know, it just didn't start um, in 66 because of, doesn't matter who started it, because we can argue that, depending on your side, uh, you could argue who started it. But my view is uh, those commemorations brought about tension. Uh, the IRA were arming, uh, and therefore it meant then that that was a threat to state. Um, so, you know, there's probably 12 different arguments about what happened then and who did it and all the rest of it. But the point about it is that's when the whole thing was, I suppose, exacerbated. So from that point of view, we know that's when the problem was. We know in 69 was the eventual outcome was going to happen. And again, you know, none of us know who knows who fired the first shot, the first stoner, first powder bomb. But people on both sides, you know, had properties burnt. 
Sure. Yeah. No. The, the very very scary times that, that that um this idea of like a mob of people who live not too far from you coming and uh the throwing out their house and burning the house. It's an, it's incredibly uh scary thing. I I grew up in the countryside, so like you you've nothing but space all around you. I, I I've always found it uh. Um, I've always found it funny how, like in in these in like urban areas, your 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 door can literally be just right there, o- open up onto the street. You know, it's it's so public. You're you're very um you're very kind of vulnerable to to a mob. You know, do, do you remember do you remember when uh when these these started happening, like the likes of Bombay Street, and and I know what happened to happened to Protestant areas too, where where a mob of people would would essentially go and uh go and evict. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, in '69, I lived in a two-up, two-down. Uh, my father's mother and father, sister and her her son, lived in the house in Conway Street. Was run down to Falls, and they had to be evacuated out of their house. And they had to come and live in our house until we were able to get them sorted out. So, like you know, this is a two-up, two-down, and it's very difficult. Uh, but you know, we all had to sleep. Some most have slept on the floor or whatever, and that the older people get to bed and stuff like that. You know, but we had them for a while and then had, we had to get them rehoused. So they were rehoused and they moved up to a new estate that was being built. And you know, those stories are all over. Same would have happened to somebody on the falls. You know, and this is this is the whole thing. So my granny, where she lived. You know, first street separated them from the bottom of Conway Street. Right, it was run on the falls, and first street went up, <clears throat> went up on the shank. Well, from the houses up there, went up on the shank. And then you had Cooper Street, uh, which is a very mixed street. Like Conway Street was as well. So you had all of these people all living together. Uh, and then somebody lights the blue touch paper, and up it goes. Uh, and, you know, all those neighbours are lost. Um, and that's the problem. They, you know, have to move into um, a very, how to describe it, ghetto in terms of, you know, uh, single identity, all that sort of stuff. And all of that richness that was there beforehand isn't there any longer. So from that point of view, you know, there's no winners in this, you know, at that time, no winners. Because, you know, those people were family people that was happening to. Uh, and they probably weren't old, but they were old to me, if you know what I mean. You know, um, and we all know that when, you know, like, you know, then when you went to the doctors, the doctors looked very old and teachers looked old and all the rest of it. Now when I go to the doctors or go to the hospital, I'm just wondering, is this doctor out of school yet? <laughs> you know, because you have a different perspective as you're growing up. You know, when you're young, everybody's old. I mean, you're older, everybody's young, if you know what I mean. So, okay. so from that point of view, like there was no winners or losers. Uh, the difficulty was that we were plunged into this. Um, it happened, um, and it got worse as we went on. So we all had to live with this in some way. Uh, some people put their head down, carried on, and other people like myself didn't. Uh, and that was for a number of reasons. But, you know, it's... Um, it's a myth to think that we all grew up, you know, uh, and we all had jobs and all that sort of stuff. You know, um, you know, I would have had a job whenever I left school. I got it myself. 
with Dan saying on the room and made out of school and then went up. Went into a factory, very small factory, just said, Yeah, man, they're going to look for a job. I could start on Monday. And he was going, Hey, right, okay. You want to start? Start on Monday. Um, but nobody got me that job. I found that job myself because I just went down and said to him, It was very handy to my house, it was around the corner. But anyway, you know, uh, and they made tubular steel stuff, furniture for schools, for bars, and all the rest of it. And I can remember it wasn't there that long. And we were doing a bar in the shackle, uh, well, this tubular furniture. And the boys who fitted it all said to me, Come here and give us a hand today. So I went around. They were like, they were old people to me, but they were probably in their late 20s. <laughs> you know, I was like 15, 16. And I went around the bar and they said to me, You want to stay for lunch? And I went, No. And said, Why? And I said, There's sandwiches around there. I'm going to go around and eat them. And uh, so I was always a bit of a loner. So I left, sitting in the workshop, eating my sandwiches. And boom, the bar was blown up. What? The bar was blown up. Now, them two boys were all right, cuts and scrapes, that was it. Um, but, you know, that's the sort of thing happened then. Um, and that was 1971. You know, so like, you know, this is a guy, it's just this good. <laughs> and he was working in the tubular. I'm laughing now, like I'm laughing because I had just left school, went round the bar. Uh, to help him out, and then decided no, I'm going round. If somebody's just round the workshop, I'm going round date them. I was a, I was, a, I was a loner, if you know what I mean. I didn't, you know, I had friends like, but, you know. But anyway, that's what happened, you know. And you know, when I think about that, I just go, hey, they survived. They were injured. Um, I probably would have been the same, but you don't know that because you don't know where you'd have been if you'd got up to get something or. Whatever you made him lane lane the bomb, you know, track lane. But no, so those things have happened. And you'll find those stories on both sides, like. But you know, so what I'm saying here is I'm not saying things to you to justify anything that happened. What I'm saying to you is that I know what happened to both sides, but I'm telling our story. You know, so from my point of view, you know, people could have been through their whole lives and never, you know seen anything or were never caught up in things. And then unfortunately a lot of people were. You know, like Bloody Friday, you know, people went out doing their business and ended up dead. You know, uh, including Catholics, by the way, very bombs. So yeah, you had all of that. And you know, um so whenever you whenever people were shooting or planting a bomb, you just weren't guaranteed that you know somebody else wouldn't get hurt. But some people did and lots of people didn't. You know, and that was the difficulty. So growing up then, you know, particularly whenever I started using bombs, uh, it got worse and worse and worse. Um, and as well as that, they were they had gangs that trying to shoot people. Um, they were coming around areas, you know, and indiscriminately firing in the Protestant communities. And that was, you know, one of the UDA, that was their birth. They were vigilante people who were trying to protect the streets with sticks, by the way, nothing else. Um, bombard fences. Uh, and so uh, from that point of view, out of vigilante movement grew the UDA. Uh, their their job is just to try to stop people coming to the community. Um, I was going to ask you. Sp speaking of bombs, um, uh, I, I I spoke. I we we got connected through through Eddie Kenner, and he he told me that um I think when he was about 
he's about 14 he um he was he was helping pick through the rubble caused by a bomb blast in a, a furniture shop it actually killed um it killed two two very like like two two babies 18 months old baby and a five-year-old Catholic. Yeah, you 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 also you you also were on the we we'll say the chain gang um trying to trying to clear out the rubble that day were you? Yeah, but do you know what the worst of it was? Um, I heard the bomb. I wasn't that far away, fifty you know, about hundred yards. And the worst thing for me, not at the time, but after it was, in those days, was that they're now called first responders, but we're talking here about the albums, right? They were picking people, they were picking limbs up and putting them in the clear plastic bags. So they were, that's what they were doing. You know, you and I like set up this whole scene, cover it all up and then take things away and nobody sees anything. And that day, they didn't. The clear plastic bags were putting limbs into it. You know, and you know, you don't think about it at the time, but afterwards you go, did I just see it? Like, you know, and I didn't know this at the time. But uh, the 18 month old baby, I knew the guy who was the father. And uh, he was a trade unionist. And this is the story. I'll tell you it very quickly. He had to go to a trade union conference on the Friday. And it was in Birmingham or somewhere like that. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but, the, but it was in England. That's a saying. And he went there. And his wife, I think, was a nurse. And she couldn't have got the chair in the Saturday because she had to go, she had to work. And she asked her sister, who lived in the old park, uh, and she took a child, and she took her down, the th- shook a child down the furniture place, and they bombed her. Now, you know, you know, that woman, the sister, she would never love herself because of that, you know. Uh, but she didn't know there was going to be a bomb in the furniture factory, in the furniture shop, and she didn't know what was going to happen. But these are sorts of things that happen, you know. Um, and I God love her because you know she had that baby with her when that baby died. Um, wasn't her fault, but I'm sure she blamed herself for going there. And um, we don't know what's going to happen in life. You know, you you walk out the door, walk across the road, and knock down the bus. You know what I mean? But you know, so those are some of the tragedies that, that happen in this society. And you know, a five year old Catholic boy was killed in that as well. And I think a person, I think I'm not sure what was his father or grandfather, but whoever was with him died as well. So it just wasn't, you know, um, that was killed. You know, at that time in the shingle, lots of people came from Catholic girls to shop on because it was brilliant shopping earlier then. It's not now, but it was then. It's, well, it's not that it isn't now. It's not as good as it was then. You had more of a selection. Whereas now, it's very limited in selection. But, you know, so you had all of them. Um, and that was the problem. Problem was you didn't know what you were going to do once you walked out the door. Would you come home or whatever, or not come home? So that was very horrific. In terms of that. the other horrific thing for me was was an hour bomb, uh, and it was um, a bomb in the four step in, which was a pub, and two guys were killed. Both of them were elderly, but they were characters and growing up in the shadow. They were known. There were these boys that told all the stories. They were seen as sort of like hard men or whatever. And they died that night when the bomb went off in the four-step in. And what, what age were you at the time, sir? 
Um, what age was it again? Uh, let me work this out. 15. You know, so uh, from that point of view, those, those were horrific. Like, um, so from that point of view, you know, that was the problem. So it may have been 16 to 10, and I think it was, may have been 16. But anyway, you know, those sorts of things happening um, were horrific. I knew the two boys. Uh, I used to talk to them at the corner, I used to tell yarns. I used to think they're all, they're all story, no true stories. And I found out they are not, I couldn't have been true, you know what I mean? But that's the sort of people they were. They were storytellers, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, they were well known about the road. Know about Shanga Road. So from that point of view, that's that happened as well. Like, you know, so and for me they were two bombs that, you know, just were totally senseless. You know, there's been loads of bombs in the Shanga, all carried out by um North Belfast IRA, and they were totally sectarian. You know, they can't they can't match that up and say they weren't. These were innocent people out for the day or out for the night and they planted bombs and killed them. Uh, you know, and they say they're not sectarian, but they were. And you know, so that was the difficulty because it got worse and worse and worse. Um and you know, so from that point of view, you know, um by the time we had got to the end of 72, it was horrific um, you know, the amount of killings that was happening and all the rest of it. That's the way it was. How, um, God, uh, how do you describe the way you felt when you go home after, after, for example, like, like helping people, helping people take out the bodies from the, the furniture shop bomb or the, the, the other bombs, just your, your, your emotional state as a, a mid teens, uh, boy go, going home after one of them. Can, can you describe to me how, how you felt inside? Well, I suppose the way I felt was angry, but it was numb as well. But it was angry. Uh, question why people would do this. Um, question about why the British government, you know, didn't move against them. Uh, and I'm talking about the army and stuff like that. But you know, the army came in here with one hand tied behind their back. You know. They weren't allowed to do things, you had to produce a yellow card, all that sort of stuff. And therefore, you know, but my difficulty with that was when I seen these young lads on the street, and they were 17, 18, probably 18, and hadn't a clue where they were. They didn't know what was a friendly area or what was an angry area. They had to look for a tricolor to know, oh, this is their own place, they're angry here. Or they had to look for a union jack to say, oh, this is friendly. And that's the problem that they had. Uh, you know, they would come from Manchester, Leeds, London, you know, Liverpool or whatever. You know, they were just kids. You know, and they were being slaughtered as well. Like, and you know, so from that point of view, you know, you add all that together and you just go like, these people joined the army, and uh, probably never thought that they would end up in their own country, you know, in the UK, in a conflict. And we're going to be murdered. Um, uh, you know, so from that point of view, the whole thing was just messed up. It was hard to read and hard to understand and trying to understand the politicians. 
you're totally useless. You know, people like stand up, you know, and talking about the blood that run down the streets. It wouldn't be their blood. It's going to be ours, not theirs. And that was the difficulty. And the difficulty was uh, that you didn't know who to be angry with. You know what I mean? Or angry at. You just didn't know because, you know, politics is, you know, then was all about illusion. It wasn't about trying to do things for people. It was about illusion. Making people think that they were doing the right things when they weren't. You know, so from that point of view, it, it was horrific. You didn't know where to turn. Uh, you couldn't trust the politicians. I'm talking about the politicians in Northern Ireland. And you couldn't trust the politicians in Downing Street either, like, because they were going to make the right decision. They were going to make a decision that made them look good. Did it feel um did it feel as if like the, the Downing Street government and and even your own government cared about you at all. Like, did, did yeah, I, I know I know a lot of people felt it was like a like like a Protestant government for for Protestant people. But 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 did it feel like did it feel like they they cared about your conditions about your lives at all? No, well, I mean, I learned that from my father. Like, they didn't care about the conditions when they let us live in what we were living in. Like, you know. But the point about it was when it came. Uh, like the decision was taken out of our hand um, and the British government came in, saw the RUC, done all that sort of stuff. Um, therefore, you just went, they don't even know what they're doing here. This is the wrong thing. I mean, they need to be thinking about what they're doing. Um, they didn't treat it, you know, they treated it as not an only a conflict and didn't look at it like that they needed to stop this. Uh, they tried to curtail it and contain it. Uh, and all of that was done by having informers in the IRA. Uh, but at the same time, those IRA informers were still able to go and do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, you know, and you know, later on when they were getting looking for loyalist informers and stuff, they let them do the same thing. Let them go and murder people. You know. So they weren't really containing anything. You know, it just made the whole situation worse. But look, listen, who knows? I'm not aware of all the facts. I can only pick things up after, read things after 30 years when they were released. But, you know, at the time it felt like nobody knew what they were doing. Uh, that they were making their own calls all the time. And they took it wrong. You know, I've been beaten by police. I'm beaten by the army. And, you know, I remember, you know, about 1973, you know, um, I wasn't living with my mother at the time. But I did go home one day to get a bath. And my mum said, they're going to come around here. And Gringo, I got out, out the back, over the wall and away. And the army came in the street in Saracens and crashed into, there was about four cars in the street and crashed into two of them. Unbodness. And see it to the crashed into? The only two people in the street that had phones at the time. And what was that for? Well, now he comes back, he's ring us. That's what they were doing. You know, it was like, you know, I've read all these books and all, you know, about conflicts, you knowing the mind and stuff like that. And when I read these books, and then this was happening, anyway. this is what was happening, this is what the Brits were doing, you know, the British Army was doing the mind. What they do is, you know, they go in and they put the fear of God into people. And when they put the fear of God into those people, those people tell them the information. They don't become informers like somebody in an organization. But they ring up and say, oh, he's there and I want to know. It's that sort of stuff. And that's what they do all the time. 
Um, and in some occasions it works, in our occasions it doesn't, you know. But it did work that day, like, because they rang me to tell, they rang them to tell them I was there. You but, might. You know, that's the sort of tactics you use, you know. Um, you you've described before. I've I've read in, a, in in articles about you that, that you described your partaking in in the riots when you were when you were kind of a, a younger teen. You 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 described it as like like an initiation of sorts. And um, what what um what age were you um at, at at the time you were referring to? And 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 just what was it like for you engaging in riots? Did, did did it feel like you were kind of uh able to unleash some of the frustration and anger? No, no, I never ever felt like that. <laughs> <laughs> for me, some reason, um, and I never thought this through. I never, how to describe it? You know, one of the things that I became was a person who was directing, but I also did it as well, and it came natural to me. I can't explain this, but it came natural to me, and you know, so I watched it, what what they were doing. And then I tried to make sure we countered what they were doing, you know what I mean? And it, it all became this game, a, a game of tactics and stuff like that. Um, and so some kids use a computer to do that now, you know, more games and stuff like that. But then, I suppose, you know, I didn't have a, uh, what do you call it? No, what do you use to play them? Ataris or something. Yeah, whatever it is. But what, what you know, so it was just my head telling me what I need to do. So anyway, that's what it was about, you know, orchestrated things, then made sure that people knew. But I also had to do it myself to actually show all other people. And um, so they used what was called snatch squads. So they had this group of soldiers, maybe six of them, and they went snatchy and bring you back. And they either got crap out of you or you got charged or done both. But anyway, and that was the sort of thing we did. You know, so from that point of view, it was about how do you stop them getting you? What do you do? Uh, and I mean, you know, I used to say to people, right, this is what we need to do. Um, and you need to make sure you can get away quick and, and don't be tripping over somebody or you're caught. And loads of people tripped over or people get caught. Like, but it was that sort of thing just about how do we do it? What are they doing? Uh, and we watched, I watched them for a while, what they were doing. And then they said, well, we do this, they can't do that. You know what I mean? So that's what we did. Um, okay, yeah. Um, so, so you um, uh, you at one stage even set up, I think in an attempt to get into the UVF, despite being too young, you set up like a, like a youth wing. You you might yeah, you yeah, talk did, yeah. about that, kind of, kind of what age you were, what, what you got up to even. 15. And I'll tell you what we got up to. <laughs> but, you know, um, we had a group. group is armed. So, you know, um, we had somebody who got the arms and stuff like that, and then uh, we distributed them. And that was one of the points of the UFMU. And we're interested. So I had brought attention on us because they were wanting to know where are we getting this stuff from? Who who is it? The plan, you know, the rest of it. But anyway, in terms of all of that, you know, um they never ever found out. Um, so you know, and then we're never gonna find out. Because it was a personal 
um, relationship between two people and they will be two you. So, uh, but I would say to you, do you get benefit from it? In did, terms did of... Sorry, I remember. I remember Eddie Eddie saying that when he was in, I think I think when he was in the UBF, or or maybe or maybe in a youth wing, one of his first duties as as like a, a fellow in his mid teens was going around doing armed robberies on people who had um, personal protection weapons as a way of as a way of procuring arms. You know, was that something that you 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 ever did? Uh no, <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. Um, other people did, and. Eddie would be right. Um, I suppose from that point of view, um, everybody had a job that they could do. And if anybody couldn't do it, then they weren't there. So, you know, one of the things was when they came in, um, what is it you want to um, provide this organisation? What are you going to get? And you know, so they thought about it and then said, Yeah, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. Uh, and some people were talking about that they were to pull the trigger, all of that sort of stuff. And he always tested them out. So, from that point of view, from that point of view, um, it was what do you call it? Um, making a choice about whether you could do or whether you couldn't. And if somebody came back and said, oh, I can't do that, then that was fair enough. As long as we're honest about it, uh, then you could put them on to something else. So that's how it worked. Uh, and again, I suppose, you know, my view was that, you know, don't put people under pressure if they can't do something. Let them do what they want to do. And, and therefore, they all know their own level and they know not to go above that, stay wherever they are doing whatever they're doing. Other people... Came into the organization were intelligence gatherers. That was it. They didn't do anything on gather intelligence. And, you know, um, and I think it was about Salem and they'd gather some intelligence over the years about things that we needed to know about or people we needed to know about, all that sort of stuff. So everybody had a different level they had to work at. Some people said, I'll do an armed robbery. They did it. That was it. You know, they were supplying the money to buy the arms. You you might um th th there's a story it's kind of um it's kind of emblematic of like how how involved you were at such a young age it was when the it was when you were, you you were, you were about to get on the school bus and uh, and I think someone told you or you saw that the British Army was was there on it looking for you I, obviously a school bus is like a symbol of of like youth and kind of kind of te teenagehood like 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 you were. You were actually known. There was like intel on you that the that the British Army had you 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 were that you were that into it. Like, well, there wasn't just it just wasn't intel. Well, it was intel, but I knew that they were angry, and they were angry because the weekend before, um, I had claimed up a up on their bunker in an army camp and took the flag down. Uh, I'm like Union Jack. Then, sorry, you took a Union oh. Jack. Sorry, you you took down a Union Jack. No, 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 no. It was our company flag. Which, when you do that, it's a disgrace on them. They were withdrawn that night. They were overrun. I took a flag down. They were overrun, and they brought in uh, seven para. 
So I ended up with them chasing me, trying to catch me. Um, and but anyway, so I, was I got away. I knew the weather because I was told. Um, and I was walking up the street to go home. I just went to myself, what am I doing here? Like, I'm a lot of school. Um, and now I've got the British Army looking for me. And anyway, I went home. And the police came to the door of the army and said to my mother, we need him to come for quest. He says, you can't tell him. He's not the age. He says, we'll have to get his father. His father's at work at the moment. So tell me where you want him to go. And his father would bring him up there. And that's what they did. So I took my dad took me up to the police station. And I went in. And before I went in, my dad said, you say nothing. Keep quiet. Uh, don't answer any questions unless I tell you. So anyway, we went in and we started asking questions. And my dad said, he's not answering that. He said, uh, you put the evidence on the table that suggests that he did this. So I put a thing on the table of a photograph. There are four photographs and they weren't great. They were very grainy and all the rest of it. But um, the, in the photographs, the person had a handkerchief tied around his face. So you couldn't see his face. And it was all grainy, and your mom says, That's definitely you. And I went, Is it? And he says, All right. He says, I can tell by your eyes. And I went, well, What about the eyes? He says, Your eyes is a dead giveaway. So my dad says, Can I have a look at that? He says, That's very grainy. I can't even see his eyes. He says, I couldn't tell you it was my son. Anyway, my dad says, You won't charge him or what? So he charged me, and I went to court, and the judge did it. The photographic evidence wasn't good enough. So that was it. Um, uh, and from then on, I was a marked boy. Like, no matter where I went, they were stopping and searching me, all that sort of stuff. Um, and later, later on, about a year or two later, I was in a car, no matter what it was, I stopped the car, searched it, got us all out, blah, blah, blah. And then they even stripped the car off. One occasion, I was in a taxi and stripped the man's taxi. And he said, said to me, you may get a mechanic to put that back net and just left it there. But all, all of that was those tactics where we're turning people against you. I see. Unfortunately, I, I was in a taxi and the guy knew me. So I got into a taxi and he said to me, are you all right? And I went, yeah. He says, do you want me to get back out again? He says, no, no, it's all right. Because he knew, he obviously knew that they were looking for me because it was a target, yes. And, you know, taxi deputies, deputies weren't that old then. They were like three or four years old. You know what I mean? Weren't that old in terms of no people operating. So, and he, I thought he'd have been angry with me, but he wasn't. And I said to him, look, I'll get a mechanic to come down and do it. He said, do you know something? I went down and I told him his name. He said, right, great. So he came down along with two boys and they put the car back together again. But they could hear mom's living, like, you know what I mean? And that's what they did. But again, and... He was going on and on and on about, why damn bastards do that? And I went, that's to get you to turn on me and to tell them whenever you see me. I'm not going to do that. I says, I know that. I says, hey, put the car back together again. You'll be all right. So put the car back together again. In quick time, Nick. And your man got in it and drove off. He seen me about two weeks later. He said, that car's going better now than before they took the parts. <laughs> did um, did so, it? 
feel, given you're, you're being chased around the place by the British Army, was there ever a feeling in your head or a thought being like, like, lads, I'm actually... I'm actually working for the same aim as you. Like, I want to keep these six counties part of the UK, and I'm trying to stop people from, uh, from, from, from taking it, taking it back to the Republic. You, you, you're here essentially for the same thing. It's year, it's year, like, like Empire, so to speak. There was never that feeling of we're, we're actually. No, because the whole thing about it was that they, they had when they come in on their first tour, they're told about loyalism, and they're told about republicanism. Loyalism isn't on our side. They're against us. They're having our people killed every day and all that sort of stuff. So it's the black side of it, the detail. It's not the truth. You know, um, so, I mean, I was, a, um, I was in a car and it was going up Crumlin Road and power troopers were behind me and a, a, what do you call it, and an open back Landover. And they, they were pulled in front of me. And as they pulled in front of me, I drove down the street. And next thing, a Landover came out of another street and blocked me in. So I got out of the car and run down the entry. And the soldier was coming up behind me. His SLR pointed at me and they had cocked, they cocked it and pointed at me. He said, stop or I'll kill you. And I said, do you not mean you're going to stop or I'll shoot? He says, no, I'm going to kill you. Stop. So I stopped. And they brought me up behind me, searched me, took me down the street. And this woman was going by. And I said to her, shouted at her, because I knew her. I said, yeah, go to Mina Brown's house and tell her I need a solicitor right away. I've been arrested. She said, right, okay. She went and done that. And got me in the back of Landover, lay me down flat and put the feet on me. So anyway, the drive up towards the mountain, and I'm going now, this is going to be good. And they're all talking like early clouds, you know what I mean? And you know, it's like a killer trying to kill a killer, if you know what I mean. So I'm in the back of him, and one says, I'm gonna shoot him. No, you're not, I am. No, I'm shooting him. So uh your says, get the thing out. So the plane folded me, got me out of long over, took me in the SP and told me to get down my knees, and they pushed me down on my knees. And so your man cocks a gun, I had a gun cracking. Fired it. And while well, he fired it, the order was to hit the other rifle and I went down. So I'm laying there and I could feel the blood running out of my cheek. And then the next thing was, I heard them all laughing. Uh, but my was totally dumb, but it was a stream that was running down. And I didn't, you know, so anyway, I was soaking. Um, he lifted me up. And hands behind the back. And they left me up. And they put me back in the laundry door. And they said, you think I fucking clever cunt? And I said, I must have been, because you didn't kill me. And they says, you fucking told that woman we had you. He said, so there's nothing we could do. So we'll give you a bit of medicine, but we're taking you back down. I said, you know what? You can't have me without the police being present. Then right, okay. Next thing. The police came and met them. And they took me into Town Street Police Station. And the two or people who were in the car with me in Town Street Police Station. And it was like, there were porta cabins. And I went in. And your mom, I said, your mom, what are you doing now? He said, you're going in here. And they hung me up on a, where they took a boxing bag down. 
and then I put my hands on the hook and hung there. And next thing was this squatty came in, but 18, but the older than me, maybe a year or whatever older, and he came in and punched the shit right out of me. Uh, and then the boy with a rifle came over and said to me, that's your chick. And I went, no, not left my hair. So your man said, hold his head up. He smacked my chick with a rifle. Anyway, by this stage, everybody had known I was there. So the listener came up trying to get in uh, and said, oh, police said, well, we've another couple of hours to go before we can get him. Once we get him, we'll let you in. So brought me out. Police brought me out and came with lesser. He said, what happened? I says, beat the shit out of me. And uh, he says, I had two boys told me that it was with you. And I went, did it? Said I. And uh, said, what did they do? And I told him what they done. So anyway, he said, right, okay. I said, look, I think the jaw's broke. So I need to go to the hospital. So if you can get me out as quick as possible, go to the hospital. So I had to go to the major hospital and had a fractured cheekbone. And so anyway, next day, I this politician approached me and said, we're going to make a case of this. So he approached the officers. They said, no, we're not making a case. I don't need reinforcers Republican propaganda. Oh, God. He said, because it would make it he said this is a fucking 17-year-old boy who's a loyalist and a unionist. And you're telling me you don't want, he says, this is not propaganda, it's the truth. Uh, it looks like Republican propaganda. So, like, you you couldn't, nobody wanted to know, like. But anyway, I, that's the way it was. Um, you, you, you mentioned there were your parents, um, through all your, um, through all your activities in, in like the youth UVF, um, were, were they aware that you were involved with paramilitaries? Were they aware of the extent? What, what was it just when you started getting uh, getting army and cops coming to the door or what? Yeah, well, I suppose it was when the army and cops came to the door. They, they were aware, you know. Uh, didn't talk much. Tell me about it. Um, they, would, they wouldn't ask you, like, what, what the fuck are you doing? Like? No, because I think it's the new that it was too far gone by this stage. That there was no road back, if you know what I mean. And they also knew that I was committed to doing what I was doing, so... From that point of view, yeah, they're always sort of maybe brought it up every now and again. What are you doing? All that, but um, that was about it. Um, obviously, um, we, we they never supported what I did, like you know, was just women. Sure, sure, but 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 even even being as young as you were, they kind of knew that you were that that like hard into it that that there was no point trying to convince you out of it. And they were hearing stories from other adults as well, like so, you know. My mother had a Catholic friend, she had ten one time she came to me about it and said to me, Do you hang about this? And I said, Don't hang in the way it was done with the Because they claimed it. And I said, But don't know. Um so that was about it. Um we 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 won't we won't dwell on it too much, but the 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 incident that that ended up that ended up uh, putting you in prison, um, there was two um, there was two. I I I think I think I've read that at the time you believed they were involved in in uh, in paramilitary groups, but uh, but I think I think it transpired they were just innocent. There was two um, two men on their on their way to work, 
and um uh, you you were driving and and your friend your friend jumped jumped out and shot him um c- c- can you take me maybe uh maybe to like your mindset at the time um that that you were willing to to go this far well you see i mean it's it's a long time ago and i realize it relative so i don't want to talk about it but i can tell you now uh that there was evidence against them and that's the issue but you know but because i know uh and what i don't want to do is annoy people who are victims uh so therefore i don't do it uh for that very reason it's simple it's in the papers um it's been repeated a hundred times, so like there's nothing more I can tell you that that hasn't been in the papers. But from that point of view, you know, our intelligence was good and it was it was proven. It just wasn't anything else. But you know, um all you got to do is look at the death notices and see who had it in. M- meaning m- meaning what? Meaning that the the uh, IRA columnists had them in. Okay, they, they were put in. That in for, you don't put that in for people who's not uncommon. Um, I see. Um, okay, so so how soon how soon after the the shooting did did you and your accomplice get caught? Very quick. Very quick. Quick. Um, uh, two things was they'd been looking for me, um, because a, a North duty police officer going to work. Um, had tied me into it. He'd seen me. Uh, he'd seen me in the car. Uh, and therefore he was able to tell them. So they got us very quickly. Um, they very nearly got me at the scene. Well, as we drove away. Uh, uh, no, sorry. They very nearly got me just after. Um, uh, because I got out of the car, and. I run up and at me and they didn't get me in it brought in. But anyway, so they knew who it was. They just had to come and collect us. Like, um, so from my point of view, that was the issue. So the guy was very, very quick. I see. I see. Um, th- th- there was a quote there from um, an interview you did in like 2020. It said, um, so I justify everything I did during the troubles to stay sane. I have to. And that's that's to me quite a quite a fascinating quote. If you, If you could unpack it a bit for us. Well, I mean, look, listen, you know, unless you're a psychopath, right, it's very hard to do anything. Uh, you need to have coping mechanisms. You need to convince yourself that you're right. You need to convince yourself that it's the enemy. You need to do all of that. Otherwise, you know, I suppose in 66, when Gusty Spence and the others went to jail, there was only two life sentence prisoners. One, I think, was a guy who uh, was a paedophile and uh, took a pair of pliers to the jail after he was finished. Um, and the other one uh, shot his mother-in-law. Oh, my God. Uh, I don't want to go into mother-in-law jokes because it was a certain no, it was right, like, but, you know, that was the issue. So, um, did we wake up in 66 and all become psychopaths? You know, that's the point that I'm trying to make. Um, none of this is easy. Uh, none of us comfortable. Um, but you have to 
believe in a cause and all the rest of it. So that's what you have to do. Um, and that apply, I'm going to apply, I'm, I'm assuming, the IRA. You need to believe in something, otherwise, you know, uh, you also need to be careful how you do it, but you need to de demonize the enemy, but you also need to recognize the enemy as well, if you know what I mean. So it's not a question of just demonizing them. Um, that may allow you to kill them, but you also need to recognize uh, what will they do if you do this and all the rest of it. So it's about, you know, it's all of that. And, you know, you need to have a mindset to make sure that you're you're in that mindset and you do it. So those those were all the things. Everybody would have had to do that. You just don't go out and do something and then come back and say, that was all right. You know? Um, when, when you talk about demonizing your, um, I guess, your your enemies or, or in the conflict, your, your opponents, how uh, how wide did that net go? Was it, I, I, I mean, was it just, IRA and then uh, IRA supporters and then wider Catholics. Um, did 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 it uh, did it take long for it to to get to? Oh well, a second. You you what you need to realize, realize is the UVF took a decision, um, in nineteen seventy two. The way to drive the IRA out was to kill Catholics, and then the Catholics would put the IRA out. That didn't work, right? But then if you go back, if you go till the eighties. You know, the thing that did work was that in in uh, South Tyrone, I think it was, or West Tyrone, whichever one it was, but anyway, South Tyrone, I think it was, you know, um, the UVF focused on Republicans, uh, people who were um, active in the Republican movement. Uh, and um, So they went after them, and the IRA were screaming to have a ceasefire. Uh, what they tried to do was try to blame uh, this was collision between the British and loyalism. Um, but the point about that is it wasn't. This was about loyalism going after them, and it went after them uh, in the 80s. Um, now, both the IRA and UVF were looking for ceasefires at that particular time. But they needed circumstances to be right. Uh, you know, um, both of them were talking to intermediaries for British government separately, but both of them were talking to them. You know, so you had all of that going on after this happened. Uh, so from that point of view, you know, uh, it's about the strategy. Uh, in 72, the strategy was wrong. It didn't work. That's the reason why it was wrong. But they assumed the Catholic population would have drove the IRA out. They didn't. Uh, they turned to them more and, and drove them out. So that was a mistake. Um, but it was a wrong tactic rather than a mistake. It was a wrong tactic. Uh, this other tactic worked. Um, so from time to time, uh, even if it stops like anything else, it could be right wing or left wing at any given stage, depending who was on it. Um, I'm assuming it was the same for the IRA, original IRA, and the official IRA. Uh, so therefore, uh, you know, all the stars need to align for these things to happen, sure. and they did. Uh, and people worked their way in '84, the ceasefires, and then you know, the rest is history, as I say. So uh, from that point of view, it's a question of, you know, coming up with tactics, trying them, and some work and some don't, and you change your tactics all the time. The other thing is that what you're really relying on is. Whoever's on brigade staff, 
you're looking more of a left leaning than a right leaning uh, to get things to work. Um, you, you you mentioned there about the about the IRA uh, talking about loyalists and security forces collusion. Um, I, obviously, obviously, quite a lot gets made of it. Um, in all your uh, through all your years being involved in uh, paramilitaries and, and UVF and so on, did you see any examples of um pretty uh, security forces, be it RUC, Army, Special Branch, uh, colluding with loyalists? Um, I, I'm sure I'm sure it happened with Republicans too. But 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 on, on no, any no, no, yeah no, it didn't. Uh, but the thing I would say tell you is, if you're looking under your car every morning, you're taking your five year old daughter to school. You know, uh, you might decide to help somebody. Um, if you, if there's a judge coming from holiday and coming across the border, killing, and you kill him, who helped you? you know, who told you that's happening? Was it a guardian officer? I'm not saying it was, but was it? Was it somebody in the travel agency? Who colluded? So, where is collusion, collusion, and where is it not? You know, so from that point of view, what I'm saying to you is I never knew anything about any institutional collusion. Uh, to give you a story myself, a story, a personal story for me, I'd been approached by somebody, uh, senior in the UVF, and they said to me, this major, I'm not going to do all the detail, but I'll tell you, this major wanted me to go and see him. And I went, no, for God, I'm not going to see any major. I said, what's he want? Um, he wants to talk to you. He thinks that you're a black because his people's being killed and they can't go after the people that's killing them because of, because of us, right? And I said, well, we're not going to see him. No way. So anyway, I came out of a place in Belfast and I came out the door. The army was all around us. And he said to me, I want you to stop doing this. So is that no evidence you're doing he says, but we believe it's you. He says, but my soldiers are being killed because of you. I'm, like, I'm not killing your fucking soldiers. What are you talking about? I'm not involved in anything. And he says, well, look, you can make all the arguments you like. He said, I've got evidence on you. And I said, you've got evidence of me, then charge me. Then off. He said, to me, I'm not punished. I said, give a fuck. He says, he says to me, I'm telling you, blah, blah, blah. So I went, I went away. And that night, there was something that was supposed to happen, and I stopped it. And I said, no, stop it. And I got two of the guys I was talking about earlier. I said to them, I want you to wait. I want you to come back and tell me what the patrols are like all around here. Go out and track it. And come back to me, said to me, it's heavy. Army and police everywhere. And I went, okay. So I called a couple people in. I says, operations are suspended for a month. Why? I said, because it was a high police level of police and army. And I said, and after this morning, we need to calm it down. Uh, and said to me, right, okay. So I got them to do that. They all pulled back. Nothing happened. And somebody came to me and said to me, what the fuck are you doing? And I says, I'm doing the right thing. And I says, and I'm doing it on the basis of our safety, of the people, and of weapons. So I said, you know, I said, don't want to do it, but I have to do it. I said, security services are too high in the area. I said, they're already focusing on us. And I said, so I pulled everybody. Nobody was doing anything. 
for four weeks. And the guy said to me, well, I didn't know any of this. And I said, well, I said, if you're wise, you'll do exactly the same thing as I have done. I said, there's a high intensity in this. I said, the focus is on us. Doesn't mean to say it's not you, but it is on us. I said, that message is getting to be loud and clear. And I said, so I'm backing off. I said, I don't want people going out and getting arrested or do want any weapons with us. So I said, that's it, simple. And anyway, that all happened. And the whole thing blew over. Other people have been arrested, lost weapons and all arrested. But we done it and said to people, this is what we're doing. And I said, so therefore, I said, I was asked and told them who asked me to meet him. And I said, no. But he went in to me and I got our people to go out and check it out. And when they checked it out, they were all over the place. So I was through. I said, I don't know what, what it done for him, but it certainly saved us. People going to jail and also getting arrested. And that's what we did, you know. You see, you had to live in your wits, like, and you had to make decisions on the basis of a thought process where, well, what happens if I fucking do jack a lot here and say, right, everybody go and they get arrested? Or I say to people, move in weapons and they move them and they're caught. Or go and do an armed robbery and they get caught. I said, I wasn't prepared to do it, you know, because for me, the evidence was too heavy by this stage. You know, being approached by somebody who won't talk to him, though I'm not doing it. Then he comes to me, and he very clearly let it on what he was going to do. So I was through everybody. And that was it. And nobody was arrested. Um, but I don't don't remember Irene being arrested or being killed or anything like that. So I don't know. But the point about it was I wasn't taking any risks. It was a you know, you just have to measure things. And sometimes you don't want to do it. It's in the end of the were, were you ever aware of, um, like an RUC or, or some kind of security force agent within the the UVF while you were operating? I mean, I'm thinking of examples like it, this would be more in the 90s, but but Mark Haddock, um, the Ken Barrett was obviously, uh, I, th- I think you, yeah, 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 yeah. That, kind of, that kind of thing. Yeah. I can tell you a more story, uh. I was in England and was coming back. And when is this now, sorry? I says I was in England. This was in 73. I had to go to England to sort of something out. And I was on my way back. And I've seen this guy talking to the same soldier who was talking to me. Right? In civvies. And anyway, I got back. Uh, called a couple of people together from on a very high level in the UVF. And I said, this guy's an informer. How do you know? I said, I've seen him with him. Uh, and the other guy with him, from my point of view, was a member of military intelligence. And I said, and they were very comfortable, laughing, joking, and all the rest of it. I said, so this wasn't a haphazard meeting. I said, the other thing is, um, this guy stayed in the same place and came back home again. And I said, now he's in his house. And I says, if you don't know where he lives, I'll tell you. I says, I'm going to get somebody to go and lift him. I'm going to interrogate him. And he said to me, no, 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 we'll do it. So I rang in our, our I was in a, in a club an hour later. And somebody came in, I says, I see him, where is he? 
I really go for him there. He said, you wish you had time. And he said to me, why? I said, I have a nice hand somebody up. And I said, it's been moved. He says, what do you mean? I says, it's been moved. I said, it was a removal array. Moved all the stuff out of the south. And he was part of the thing with Andrew and turned away. When? And there I go. So why did I contact us? Now remember there was no way we'll be phones around. So how far was going to do that? And went and used common. And said to me, like, well, better call it off. I said, call it off. You should have done it earlier. He disappeared off the Sierra. Really? Yeah. Now, who told him? I don't know. Uh, was it an informer? He was an informer. So I'm sure that they have intelligence to say something's happened. Uh, so we, yeah, there's always a chance. Uh, that in no matter what formal organization you have, they're always been informer. You know, everybody's different, all different mentalities, different sort of how to describe it, you know, things that they want to do. Um, you know, fear God put up them, don't want to go to jail or don't want to die or whatever, and they'll do anything. So you know, they've always like this is nothing new. It's always been about that, you know, that they would use people to give them the information. And there'll be different levels of information. Obviously, he was hand up up there and they didn't know where it was going on. Uh, anyway, he disappeared, never come back. Did um did the UVF I mean, okay, so so recently there's been there's been like a lot of talk about steak knife and books about it and so on. Obviously he was in the the internal security uh, unit within the IRA, the, the Nutting Squad, as as it was known, was there like an equivalent in the in the UVF? Was it was there like a, a Nutting Squad for you, for for informers, you know? Uh no, I thought well, there probably was, but it's never planned. If you know what I mean. Uh, I think it was always whenever something that was happening, um, they would have picked people individually, um. And so, therefore, it was very hard to tell who was doing what. Uh, I think it, having a nothing squad, if they're all in the same squad, it's very easy. Which, which, which most certainly happened, yeah. <laughs> Rat and yeah, on the dirt that you, you know who it is. Specialisms are great, uh, but the hub are false. And their fault says that whenever you're known to have a specialism, then when something happens, uh, you know, they can find it as very easily. So it's a question of trying to use different people at different times. And that doesn't always happen. It didn't always happen to you They may have used two or three times, but the whole idea was just use people to do it. And usually, yeah, people who wouldn't have, wouldn't have known as well. Okay, see, um, right, right. So, um, we 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 were talking about you getting you getting caught for the the shooting. How long? Uh, how long did you end up serving in in Lancash? Sixteen years. And you went in at the age of eighteen. But what you need to remember here as well is that um, I've got all the stuff from prison, got it out of the archives. And they put me back. I refused to recognize, so did Eddie Kenner as well, by the way. We refused to recognize a late sentence review board. You never went and felt them, uh, but they took information from prison officers who I don't know how they would have ever known anything because they were never with us. 
you know, we walked around the compound and uh, right outside the compound. Uh, the only time we came into contact with you was when you went to visit, or you went to a doctor's, or you went to get a welfare home. So from that point of view, but anyway, so um, what I had done when I was in for 15 years, it put me back for five more years. Uh, I, myself and Pat Thompson, who was the in charge of the provisional IRA in non um, me and him had been approached by uh, an Australian diplomat who wanted to look at special category status on the compounds in terms of the prison system. Because he had read about it, thought it was a good idea. There was less resistance and all the rest of it. But anyway, so he came to see me and he said to me, can you explain it? So I explained it all to him, told him about what the whole um, ethos was, you know, how it worked, what we did and all that. And uh, so we had a long chat. And he says to me, I'm going to Whitehall tonight for dinner. Do you mind if I talk about this? And I went, no. He says, Whitehall should know about it. If they don't, then what are they doing? So he says, I'm going to go and see the guy in charge of provision IRA. So that's okay. I said, don't be surprised if Pat doesn't tell you what I've told you. Don't be surprised if Pat and me, we haven't talked. I said, but it'll happen. You'll see a lot of similarities. Uh, and he said, right, okay. So he went and talked to Pat. And Pat came down the next day. He's going to the doctor's office and he called me and I went out and I said, what happened? He says, what about your mom last night? And I was sitting down with I said, he said he's going to Whitehall and all the rest of it. But anyway, Pat says, I said, he wasn't bad, he wasn't I? But he listened, Pat. That's what I'll say. Uh, and not only did he listen, but he heard. And Pat said to me, well, you're right, you're right. Anyway, about a week later, I was approached by a governor. Um, he's been put in specially uh, to talk to me and he said to me look we'll have a problem and I says do you I said is this Houston has a problem or who is it and he went to me we have a problem and I said what's your problem he says to me yeah. you know City Hospital is putting a drain on the money uh, and so are you and I says well you're not getting me stick every day he says, no, we we'll have to feed the dogs, state poor dogs, who belong to the army. I said, it's not my fault. He said, of course you more to keep a dog awake than was me. And he started laughing. He says, no, seriously, can we start talking? I says, what are you talking about? He says, tell me. So he told me all he's talking about. I says, look, let me go away, think about this, talk to a couple of people, and then we'll come back to you. He says, I'll give you a week. I says, right, okay. So he came back in a week. And... I said to him, right, here's the deal. Um, if you want us out of here, we get what we we'll have here in the eight blocks. All the doors locked back, put curtains up. Um, the whole eight blocks open to us. Uh, the yard gets opened up so we can walk around the yard. And that's just part of it. Um, uh, we get fridge. Uh, we get... Um, Washing machines, we get dishwashers and that. Anyway, why are you asking this? And I says, well, we have dishwashers here, but we do it behind. But I'm assuming you won't have that same thing in the blocks. And I said, so, you know, that's, you know, sort of it. 
He said, is that all you want? I said, no. I said, every mom's bachelor cavity status is released within two years. Said, no chance. I said, then it is off. Go away. He said, we'll go and talk to Pat and he'll come back to you. So he went to Pat and said to Pat, Pat told him all the same things, except Pat said, I'm only out in 18 months. He says, no, we'll go two years. <laughs> so he had recognised it. But anyway, and that's what we did. They moved us over to the blocks, gave us everything we asked for, uh, and then they started releasing us one by one. Now, this is before ceasefires, right? This is 89. 80, started about 87, and they started releasing everybody. And that'd be out in 1990. 1990, right. Yeah. Was, um, was it in prison where you kind of had a mind shift a a a, a a a mind a, a mindset shift, excuse me, uh, related to like whether violence was the way was the way to go or political means. Did, did it happen in prison? Oh yeah, of course it did. Um, um, yeah, and you know, so did Gusty let a lot of that in terms of no talks and stuff like that? But no, and uh, so. It was a bit like, I would describe this. You know, when you're in prison, you were looking at the window and you could see everything was going on. The window was the TV, by the way. But you were, and you were shouting at the TV. And then you went, they can't fucking hear me. You know, but you could see the mistakes people were making. You, could, you know, so uh, we always worked towards that. And the governor knew that. Um, all the visitors that used to come in in terms of, you know, People from different parts of the world come in to see you. And um, people used to complain to me, this is like a zero coming in my glass. They said, Look, there's a motive in this. You just need to bear with me. And that would have worked, you know, because everybody went out and talked about what we were doing, what Pat Thompson was doing. And then all of a sudden, this Australian went, Can you not see us? The ones in Whitehall? No. You realise that these people are working towards peace. Can you not see what they're doing? They're working with people on the outside. And both of them are heading towards the ceasefire. Not because of the deal, but because on the outside have said they need to find a way to do it. Uh, and then Whitehall sat up and listened. And for whatever reason, they listened to this Australian diplomat. They've been told that story 60 times. Never once before did they listen. Or they did listen, they didn't hear. On this occasion, they did. So they set the motion in place for things to happen. So um, the father and the priest who became the conduits to the IRA and the UVF. Uh, so they met the IRA and they met the UVF on different occasions, went back, reported back to the MAO, told them what was going on. Um, and that's where all that started. And I'm talking about 87, 85, between 85 and 87. Okay. So those things started to happen. So therefore, they were building that momentum. People were hearing what was going on. And anyway, we were released. In 84, on the 15th of December, we went to meet a civil servants. Sinn Féin went to meet the civil servants. And we sat in the office in the Chicago upstairs. And Gusty said, listen, 
I want Hachi to lead this today rather than David. So David, this is not about you, this is about Hachi. So anyway, look at who the person is uh, chairing the meeting. Said who is it? Said this is a boy Hachi negotiated with and got all the prisoners out within two years and got to move their blocks and got the blocks changed the next conference were. Said now, what I'm saying to you is that these people are Las Vegas card sharks. He said, so we need to um, you know, make them unsettled. But Hutchie in his chair, let him lead the delegation. David, you talk all you want, but let them think that Hutchie's running this for the day. And David said, I think that's a great idea. So I anyway, moved up and sort of went in. And one of the people who had known from Whitehall came down the hall. And he says, hello, hey, are you keeping well? I haven't seen you for a few, couple of years. I said, I'm four. And he started laughing. And he says, I'm going to take you in. But before I take you in, I have to tell you to swap the chairs. You're getting champion's chair and champion's getting your chair. So Gusty was right. This was the psychology. You un unnerve him. He said, so swap the chairs over. And I said, that was very handy. He says, when we heard you were leading the delegation, swap them over. And I said, maybe we shouldn't have told you that we got here. He said, we'll still swap them because we suspected that you were going to pull something like that. And he looked over my shoulder and Gusty started saying, and he just laughed and walked away. So there is what we're trying to do. And this is the thing about it all the time. So you always need to do that. But anyway, just telling you that. So we come out and David says to me, you handle the press because we're going to talk to prisoners anyway. You handle the press. So I take a question. First question was, what were you doing in there? Of you were talking about prison releases. I went, no. What were we talking about prison releases for? I said, we're talking about the constitutional position in this country. And I said, so, no, we weren't. Uh, and he said, so you didn't talk about prison releases? I said, no. I said, I did, on my own, privately, to the guy who actually released me. What are you talking about? I said, how many Prisoners are on the street, life sentence prisoners are on the street in Northern Ireland. And he turned around and said, Hey, man, he said, 365. He went, What? He said, 365. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, Such and such has just been released. I said, I'm sorry, I was normal on that. I just went around and released. You know, your mom said to me, How does this happen? I said, That happened because two things. Luster Hospital was costing a fortune. And they were losing money. Don case was too dear to keep open. So it's on the team. Yeah. And I said, why do we not know nothing about this? And I said, is there an investigative journalist out there? Maybe if there was, you would have known. You know, and, you know, so the media were taken back by that. And therefore, must to meet me in a group. And I went to meet them. And they said to me, are you serious about this? I said, of course I am. I said, look, listen, you know, it was us, the Provost New Day, all get out. I said, it was a negotiation. And he says, over the money. I said, yes, couldn't afford to keep it up. Needed us to move the eight blocks. And we said, you can't move us to eight blocks. We're special category status. And you need to give us what is on the terms of our special category status. Free association. You know, we have to be able to move about the, the whole wing or block 
uh, you can't block us off from anybody. We need an education base. Yeah, we need to do our education, study and all the rest of it. Your mom says to me, you're making this up. And then one of the journalists says he's not. And he said, the journalist said to him, how the fuck do you know? And he says, because I believe him. He said, I definitely believe him. He said, and I'm going to tell you, he said, this guy's so open, it's unbelievable. He said, he says too much sometimes. And I says, I'm not here to hate things. I'm here to tell you what's going on. I'm not telling you because it was a bad thing. What I'm trying to get through your heads is there's 300 and whatever it was on the streets and you just fucking worrying about us talking about the release of prisoners. And I said, you know, I said, this was done for a deal over money. It wasn't done for a deal over, you know, political aspirations. I said, British government needed help out. said to me, what do you, I said, they, they needed rid of non-cash. They had to give us some. And I said, go and talk to Pat Thompson if he'll talk to you. Go and talk to Sinn Féin the Falls and also can they get you an interview with Pat Thompson off the record. And man came back to me and says, I spoke to him. And he says, he told me the whole story as you told me. He says, it was nearly word for word. And I said, no, you are. He said, me and Pat's not in the head. You know, it was that sort of stuff, you know. Um, and I think a journalist then sort of sat up and started saying, Right, okay. You know what I mean? And then Mum Mullen wanted to go in to see the UVF prisoners. And um, she spoke to me and David and Plum Smith. And Plum Smith turned around and said, Look, Mo, you can go in and talk to UVF prisoners all you like. Nobody's objecting to it. But you won't be talking about the constitutional position. And you won't be talking about their support or anything when talking. So she went then. She met with Johnny Adderno, I think at the time, I'm not sure who it was, whatever it was. <laughs> and when she came out, <coughs> she came back to us and said, he's right. They're saying that this has nothing to do with them being released. It's about the constitution position in the country. They're not in negotiations to get released. They're not interested. What they're interested in is the constitution position. And they're leaving all that to PEP. And you know, Mo was genuinely going, I wasn't expecting that. And we were going, but you were told. Says, I know, says, it's not that I don't believe you, because I believe most things you tell me, but I just went, nah, this can't be right. Says, I'm then, and these people talking to me, and just said, no, it's a constitutional position. We're not looking out. If we get out, we get out, but we're not pressing for it. And yes. says, PP will deal with all that. And that was the sort of, sort of things happening. So when people start to see that, you know, people bought into that sort of stuff and it made it easier for us to get things done. Gotcha, gotcha. Actually, you, you just mentioned Johnny Adair and um, I, I read that after after the, the Good Friday Agreement that there was kind of, a, I suppose, a feud within, within a certain kind of loyalist community and that the RUC warned you that, that your life was under threat. That What, what was that like? Uh, what was that like going back to life being under threat type of uh type well of i mean what you need to realize so long after, time, so long after. That, okay. yeah but at that particular time whenever they came to tell me i'd already got 28 death threats uh recent recent or, or in your life yeah 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 you know and that was the issue like so i wasn't worried about it i just went i also had an attempt in my life as well 
Um, well, I didn't have an attempt in my life. The uh, police avoided it. They got me before the attempt, but there was an attempt. Um, being carried up by a Republican group because it was advertised on BBC Radio Ulster that I was coming into the studio. And after that, they had to rethink everything. So they couldn't announce that people were coming in. I see, I see. And and, and what year was the, the IRA threat that you're referring to? Um... I don't know. I'll be. I'm only guessing at this. Um, late eighties, early two thousands. Okay, very good. Look, um, th th thank you very much now for everything you share. We're, we're we're coming up to the end of, end of our time. I I don't want to keep you too long. Is there anything just as um as like a final uh, final set of thoughts to leave us with that um that, that you wanted to mention? Well, the thing what I would leave you with is look, listen. You know, we've had the conflict, we've had the ceasefires, we've had a peace process. Uh, so therefore, we need to make sure the political process works. And it won't work until the political and peace process merge. Um, but the reality is, we've got a framework that we need to work in. Uh, and if we work in that framework, then people can live side by side. So... I think that's a positive note to leave on. Would you describe Northern Ireland now as somewhere where what you're talking about is the case, where um, where, where the political system does work well? It doesn't work well. Um, and that's the problem. The problem was that we were supposed to uh, review the Good Friday Agreement, and it hasn't been reviewed. Um, you know, uh, if something's, you know, so it, my, my view, this is how I would describe it. My analogy would be that if, if I knew my brakes weren't working on my car, I wouldn't drive it. Because it could cause death to somebody or me or both. So therefore, I wouldn't do it. We've got a political process that doesn't work. It allows people to wait, go outside the political process if they want to. And we've seen this. They thought that a prison officer killed police officers being shot, police officers being injured, all that. And we need to stop all that. And the only way to stop that is, is to make sure, you know, that that framework we have works. Um, now, you know, everybody, it's like a trouble, so everybody can point the finger at each other. The reality is, if everybody doesn't get their shoulder to the wheel, it's not going to work. Uh, and if the system isn't working, then we need to fix it. Um, I think that that's the important thing. You know, um, we know what the framework is, and we know um, what should be done. That's why the British and Irish government actually recognise what needs to be done uh, and stop pondering the people and just get on with it. So from my point of view, there's an opportunity there. Um, it's got a cat, a bit of stick, but more cat stick. Sure. Um, would do, do you ever think, um, maybe not even in your lifetime, but in, in my lifetime, we'll say that, um, that the six counties will, will rejoin uh, the 32? Do, do you think that'll ever happen uh, in the next, I don't know, number of decades? Well, it will happen in my lifetime. That's what I'd say to you. Um, you know, I can't help thinking about uh, the people who live in poverty and learn, you know, particularly Catholics. 
want to run their system where they won't have what they have here. You know, uh, free education, free health service, all that sort of stuff. Um, um, so from my point of view, um, I think that everybody, it's great to have a, an, idea, an ideological thought about the United Ireland, but it's not going to keep you in the custom you're, you're usually, then I think they will make go, oh, no, no, and not, not yet, not yet, you know, but we'll see. Um, you know, um, and I'm not suggesting for one minute that if we were to move in there, that people would be peasants. I'm not suggesting that, because uh, then times are over in the you know in the developed countries, um, but there will be people who will be living in poverty. But the other thing I would say to you is that um, you know if there was United Ireland tomorrow, people here would get persecuted. So if the United Ireland was there, I wouldn't trust Republicans not to persecute those people who were involved or their families. I see. So there's always a difficulty with that as well. Yeah, re re reprisals and, and so on. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Um, th thank you very much. Um, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we could finally sit down and talk. Um, great, uh, great stuff, and uh, I, I appreciate your time and, and your insight. Well, what I'm saying to you, John, is if you ever want to revisit this, or you think it's some of the stuff, um, didn't come across or wasn't the quality you wanted, I'm here. You know how you get me. I appreciate it. No, I great. Um, savage. We 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 may speak again just on uh just on another topic or or, or more detail. Whatever, yeah, yeah. Just I'm here anyway. Now that you've opened up the link, just come back to me whenever you need to. All right. Nice one. I I, I really appreciate it. Th th thanks okay. again. For